I'm Abby Atkinson and this is Don't Let Dave Win, the podcast that discusses mental health and that negative inner voice that we all have within the world of the arts industry. My guest this week is actor, movement director and theatre maker Gavin Maxwell. Gavin teaches movement classes at All In Actors, which is where we first met. He is the co-artistic director of physical theatre company Jim Jam and also a practitioner for Frantic Assembly. Gavin identifies as neurodivergent. He chats very candidly about his journey with ADHD and autism, and I feel very honoured to have been trusted enough for him to share so much with me. Can you hear me sipping my herbal tea? Some ASMR. <laughs> some, some a nightmare version of ASMR. <laughs> <clears throat> I feel like we should probably do a bit of a check-in as well before okay. we start, just because it could... Yeah, it has the potential to go into very sort of personal areas, and so just to see where you're genuinely at today. So yeah, in two words, how do you feel? <laughs> uh, I feel excited and... Feel a bit like bubbly, a bit like not like bubbly as in oh I'm so bubbly as in <laughs> yeah yeah nice. What would my two be? I think mellow, um, but also a bit jittery. A bit jittery. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no sun's shining today. I'm feeling quite ah quite. You've got your shirt on. Yeah, my cool Hawaiian charity shop find shirt. Yeah, <laughs> the best. Like for honestly, you never you never find that anywhere else, would you? Yeah, rocking it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so first question has to be: Do you have an inner voice that tells you you're crap and not good enough? A hundred percent. Yeah, I really feel that I do have a voice. Uh, I I've kind of come to assume that everyone has that, but I don't. I don't know if that's the case, but I kind of assume that everyone has you know you kind of see it in cartoons don't you sometimes depicted as like a little angel or as a little devil Mm -hmm. but but for me I think I think generally it's just one yeah one voice Mm -hmm. is it your own voice or is it a voice that's different to yours (laughs) I don't know I I think it's just my voice but it would be better if it was like someone else right Mm -hmm. it might be easier to swallow if it was like Joe Pasquale (laughs) but I I think it's my own voice yeah it definitely feels like more of a reflection of myself than kind of anything else anything you know something else external Mm -hmm. nice do you have a name for it do I I would refer to that voice uh simply can I swear it's like yeah go for it i would i would simply refer to that voice as the fucker yeah (laughs) that's what i call it the fucker the fucker that goes oh don't do that gavin that's going to be a bit shit if you do that don't do it like that or you know everyone's kind of watching you and you're doing a really shit job Mm -hmm. that's that's the fucker yeah yeah no i feel that definitely and yeah does it is there a certain point where that voice comes into play sometimes more than others in terms of your career, in what aspects would you say that that comes into play? I don't, it often feels like the the fucker is at play, often in often in those like really integral 
moments when you've got a step up you know maybe for the first time in a room uh, as someone who could be leading that room in a, in a creative capacity or or maybe even just as a kind of a peer a collaborator in that room and it's come to the bit that you're kind of contributing to I often find it find it's those moments when certainly when that voice is the loudest but actually th- saying it out loud now I also I think sometimes it's outside of the room as well that that kind of self-doubt can kind of kick in and mm-hmm. kind of you know play on your mind and in those instances it's probably often the kind of quiet you know like when you're kind of occupied and your brain's busy with stuff the the fucker generally is a lot quieter mm-hmm. and uh and when there's kind of space you know, oh hang on <laughs> just when you, just when you want to oh yeah good i'm not thinking about too much i can kind of relax i can decompress yeah. then it'll rear its head oh should you really be doing this or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you think that is is it a mental health thing for you do you sort of know what that is like is it anxiety is it low self-esteem yeah what is that voice for you maybe it's all of those things to a certain extent I mean yeah it could be kind of fueled by feeling anxious I've never really thought of it kind of just as a kind of mental health thing but I, I suppose do you know what I've kind of automatically done there I've kind of auto, I think I've all, almost automatically gone to myself ah oh, I've always kind of judged myself for like the fact that it could it could be do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and actually kind of forgetting that we, we've all got to kind of navigate that so maybe it is a bit of kind of mental health maybe it is I don't I, I don't know yeah yeah no it's difficult isn't it like it's it's easy to pinpoint the moments where it comes into play but not necessarily why a lot of the time what do you think it is? Um, yeah, so I've been... And what is it for you, should I say? Yeah, I've been trying to decide. I'm not sure either. At first, I felt like it was low self-confidence. Sort of, you shouldn't be here. You're not experienced enough to be here. And so, um, feeling like the least experienced in the room in an acting capacity was initially what it was. But then that voice comes into play just in life in general a lot as well. So mm-hmm. I think... I then have to kind of evaluate, okay, is this my anxiety and depression or is it something separate to that or does it all, it probably all entwines and, you know, comes into one. But um, yeah, for me, it helped to give it a name so that I can kind of see it as something separate to me. And so although it's a part of me, it's not like the integral core. So yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I I also think kind of christening (laughs) that voice is... Well, it's quite liberating, like you say, because you can then, yeah, you're kind of not, kind of not haunted by that. Are you? You're able to kind of go right. This, well, this is probably a thing that a lot of other people identify with and have as well. I think that mm-hmm. that also was a kind of a bit of a game changer, really. Kind of being in rooms where other people were empowered enough to also kind of share their experience yeah. of that kind of niggling little little voice. Yeah. And to go, oh, crikey, like, I'm not just this kind of worthless kind of mm-hmm. uh, imposter. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get a lot of imposter syndrome? Yeah. 
Yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nearly every week I, it feels sometimes. I don't, I don't really know why, because I can have moments where I do have lots of self-belief and I kind of do go, yes, I absolutely can be here and mm-hmm. yes, I, I should be able to kind of take up space here or I've got lots of value to add to this room or this situation or this this company that have employed me whatever it is uh-huh. but but you know still sometimes yeah you, you do kind of doubt why whether you've whether you've truly got something to kind of offer and I think the the fucker <laughs> it is sort of that voice as well mm-hmm. the main instigator of imposter syndrome like I don't think yeah. they're necessarily two different things I think imposter syndrome for me is the fucker right okay yeah that's interesting yeah, I guess I'd agree with that, actually. I think mine probably is as well. That's definitely the times where it screams the loudest anyway. Like the, oh, you shouldn't be here. Um, yeah. Yeah, everybody else has more to offer than you do. Yes. And, and I don't think that ever goes away. Like having chatted to multiple people on this podcast even, like I'm very much at the start of my career compared to the majority of the people I'm interviewing. But everyone says the same thing. And so I think no matter how sort of far you get you're you're always gonna have it to yeah. some degree yeah i think even i think if you try to people that you know are at the peak of their career whatever that is whatever that looks like mm-hmm. or people that you kind of really admire i bet i bet they'd probably say the same thing actually yeah I do think that everyone has it to some degree or another or, do, or are there just some arseholes that <laughs> <laughs> that don't i think there probably is i think i probably have met a few arseholes that have no imposter syndrome and no qualms in just taking over a room and fucking arseholes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all met a few. Well, that's how they come across anyway. I mean, maybe maybe they do. Yeah, maybe it's because of imposter, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably worth asking you, so in your own words, how would you describe what it is you do and how long have you been doing it for? Okay, good question. And I think where I'm most happy at the minute is to I think I think I I call myself a theatre maker it can be a really problematic tricky thing to kind of pin down I'm I'm this but I feel like theatre makers broad enough that it covers lots of the things I do I think Mm -hmm. that more and more certainly in the last maybe five or, or six years the kind of things that I do the work that I do often involves movement in some capacity but not always but like so sometimes I'm like, oh, am I kind of a movement director or not or and then imposter syndrome kicks in because I'm like I'm not a dancer like honestly you should see me I'm like terrible <laughs> uh full-on dad dancing at a disco but um you know so it, it can be like, am I a movement director occasion very occasionally I still want to perform in things I mean yeah so it can be it can be difficult to kind of box in like i i'm this but like theatre maker feel is a term that i guess i feel more comfortable with because yeah it captures like lots of the things that i do and i think irrespective when i kind of really boil it down like i just get a kick and a buzz mm-hmm. and can't uh, see myself really wanting to do anything other than make theatre even though often theatre really disappoints me uh and I don't go to the theatre probably as much as I should because you know because it kind of annoys me frustrates me but seeing other shows you mean yeah I think so I think I think largely I kind of have learned that 
more and more the kind of the theatre that I want to make maybe goes against the kind of the status quo so it's, it might not be a, com- a conventional piece of work you know mm-hmm. whatever that might look like there might be something about you know the the thing that I'm trying to make or the story that I'm trying to tell that wouldn't sit nicely in a kind of um, proscenium arch theatre where the audience sit down and kind of have their ritual and they go in and they have their ice cream and all that <laughs> shite like it, it probably yeah it, it probably offers some kind of different experience or at least often I'm aiming for that because I know that that's the kind of the things that I, I personally enjoy something mm-hmm. more tangible something more um, dare I say it immersive and engulfing and you know mm-hmm I've digressed wildly there, Abby, but I think, I think I'm a theatre maker. <laughs> yeah, nice. And is, is that what you love most about it? Kind of the breaking away from, I guess, like whatever traditional theatre means. Is that where a lot of the passion comes from or something else entirely? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I think I've got a kind of, I've got an urge to tell stories often, like I say, using movement as the kind of primary form or a kind of one of the most kind of key ways of kind of telling that story in in a different way maybe theater that uses like less words mm-hmm. more and more as well and i think particularly in this country there's a kind of tradition of like theaters made by a playwright right and mm-hmm. um and they'll write a script and and will interpret it and put it on and great and i guess we see more and more from like like various different companies, knee high and uh, complicite, uh, the terrible infants. That that's not always. It doesn't really need to be need, need to be the case, you know. Like we, you know, we can kind of explore and tell stories in different ways and not with words and maybe not even in a theatre. Yeah. And I think, I, yeah, I think that does does excite me. I think as an audience member, as a human, like I, I can't think of anything worse than going and sitting in like a hot theatre. And being told to sit really still for sometimes what like three hours yeah um but yeah i mean i'll always be surprised i'll always kind of like i say i don't go to the theater as much as i should do and i probably can be a bit too stubborn a bit too rigid about that um but it's it means not always i don't live in london so it doesn't always feel super accessible either mm-hmm. you know what i mean the art center that, that is kind of near to me doesn't necessarily kind of cater for the kind of work that I'd maybe really love to see right yeah um London's probably more likely to but it's, it's just not always possible do yeah. you know what I mean to kind of get in and see stuff definitely yeah like for a for an actor it feels like London is sort of the place I have to be at the moment to sort of get um you know step on the ladder or <laughs> whatever yeah. um yeah it definitely feels a bit inaccessible at times like being from Harrogate, I didn't know anybody else who was wanting to go down this route. There's only the one theatre there. Like it, yeah, I hadn't gone to see much before I started acting either because it never felt like it was on my doorstep or anything. Because yeah, where did where did you grow up? Did it feel accessible for you? So I often find that quite difficult to answer that question. Like where are you from? Mm-hmm. Maybe like I I was born in Canada. And I lived for quite a bit of my kind of childhood. I lived in Germany, in Cologne. Wow. And in in London. We kind of moved back to Barnet for a bit. And then my parents' jobs took them to Peterborough in East Anglia for a while. So I probably spent 
my most formative years there, particularly like that time where where things were making a bit of an impression mm-hmm. on me kind of culturally. And the theatre there is it's called the Key Theatre and it's still it's still going. And they like the only kind of theatre that I knew then was like was musicals. So right, I kind okay. of like cut my teeth like <laughs> being in in fame and the king and I would you believe it and, amazing <laughs> and and thinking that that's what theatre was and I, I kind of was okay with that like there was you, you know I think even though I kind of talked a bit about the about the fucker like there was still a big part of me that just w- was a real exhibitionist that wanted to like be seen and to perform and got a buzz out of like making these shows and often as well about like the, the like I sort of felt when I got into the theatre like I kind of found my tribe and the sort of people that I kind of connected with best mm-hmm. but to answer your question more specifically the kind of the theatre wasn't showing anything that made me go oh wow this is like what it what it could be mm-hmm. and I wasn't really necessarily experiencing theatre as much as an audience member then I probably would have gone oh no it's boring I just want to be in it like mm-hmm. so it really kind of wasn't until I moved to London as well that mm-hmm. I saw things that just kind of blew my brains. Yeah. Um, when I was at drama school, like I got into drama school when I was eighteen, and um, I kind of just wanted to get, just wanted to get away from people. Actually, I just wanted to kind of go, and I wanted to be a bit more independent and away from home. And in many ways, I probably wasn't mature enough to go. Right, you know, kind of how a lot of people will will get knocked back from drama schools because they're kind of, and and to a certain extent, I think, oh fuck that, you know, like how can you kind of how can you say someone's not mature enough like for this experience and what is that like is it an age thing like i felt mature enough but anyway like i i got in when i was 18 and i used to, i used to just take myself on like little theater dates on my own <laughs> I used, nice i love that yeah and one of them one of the first ones was a company called shunt and i don't know if you've ever heard of them I but they know. they like they made these like wild I, I guess they probably would have been at the beginning of like immersive type work where they'd like, it took over either London, yeah, I think it was London Bridge at the underground station, all of like the vaults and the tunnels, a bit like, you know, the vaults. Nice. They're sort of like underneath there, there's this sort of labyrinth of rooms and tunnels and arches. And I just went to this kind of show and, and like was part of it and all of a sudden I was in like a kind of jazzy like a jazz bar and like in the show and and, and I also saw one of Punch Drunk's first shows they did a version oh, nice. of Faust around about then in an old sort of abandoned high rise block of flats so cool I, I haven't like, seen any of that stuff but I really want to well, it's, it, it, it I mean, talk about inaccessible right how much are the tickets for that yeah yeah because um, I wanted to see their most recent one but yeah like 100 quid for, for a ticket and Have I was like you got a kidney to yeah. kidney spare <laughs> yeah I was like no no I don't no, kind of need... want to hold on to those <laughs> <laughs> that would be, yeah it would be ideal to have both kidneys wouldn't it um, but yeah like and I guess that those all things in in hindsight kind of all made a bit of an impression and kind mm-hmm. of led me to that place where I'm like actually I'm not sure the sort of the theatre maker that I, I am and want to be is making theatre that might you know just exist in that conventional space yeah nice um have you ever doubted whether it's the right industry for you yeah yeah lots of times I think 
the pandemic was a big kind of point where I kind of felt maybe it wasn't very sustainable and I didn't feel that well looked after, not necessarily by the industry. Some of the companies that I was working for were amazing, like a massive shout out to Frantic Assembly, who were incredible at offering the support that they could. But from the government, I kind of thought, oh, right, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if this is a career that I can kind of, that's viable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got I've got a family and yeah, I just, I, I, definitely then. And there's probably other points as well. And it's very easy to kind of yeah. ask yourself, is this, is this the, sometimes, it, you know, you can feel a bit kind of selfish pursuing this when you've when when you've got other dependents I've found as well you kind of because quite often you know work can be quite flighty and take you off here and there and and there have been points where I've kind of wanted where I've often questioned should I be doing this like is this like is this selfish of me is this wrong of me to kind of be be following this passion dream um career I think I think I've often gone well hang on like actually no maybe it isn't yeah there's lots of variables lots of things to take into account but I'm probably at my best as a human when I'm doing the things that I'm most passionate about and love and I'm fired up by so Mm -hmm. I guess that I've come to terms with well yeah maybe I should be doing it maybe maybe I'm the best version of myself when I am yeah yeah I feel the same way um because I had a bit of I felt bad about the fact that like my family had supported me financially to like go to uni and do um, English literature. And then at the time um, I wanted to be a lecturer. And so I was planning to do a PhD. So I was like, right, I'll do a master's first at Lancaster Uni in English Lit. Um, And then the pandemic hit. And it was over that period where when I decided it felt like a quarter life crisis really being like <laughs> fuck that I I need to give this acting thing a go like yeah that voice of being like you're always going to regret it if you don't at least give it a shot you know and then I almost feel guilty like god my family spent so much money like supporting me getting me to uni and you know for I, I don't feel personally like on my personal journey like they were wasted years but in terms of career wise it kind of mm. does now um so yeah I felt really guilty about that like it kind of felt like I was throwing that away and maybe, yeah, so no, I, I get the, yeah, I get the selfish thing actually, kind of thinking, oh, should I be doing this or should I stick to, you know, the path I said I wanted to do? But no, like, I feel so alive and much more like me when I'm doing this kind of thing that no, like, I definitely would have regretted it if I hadn't and probably been a really sour bitch and <laughs> <laughs> horrible to be around, you know? And, that, and that's with all the, yeah, well, exactly. Like, I mean, we were kind of, talking really aren't we about about some of the pitfalls of maybe working in this industry or or how you know things that we all as humans have can be can be amplified because of the industry that we're that we're in mm-hmm. um and even with all of that it, it kind of it still feels like I'd probably be rather definitely rather be doing that than working in an office yeah. not that working in an office is not an okay thing to do but just as an individual Mm-hmm. I think yeah I'm most authentically myself yeah doing this and that's wicked that you are as well it's wicked <laughs> that you've kind of prioritized yourself yeah and I feel so much better for having done it as well yeah even the obstacles that you have to overcome in this kind of career like that feels like a small price to pay compared to yeah. how I felt before when I was sort of felt at rock bottom and like that's it I'm just never gonna do the thing that I know deep down I really want to 
want to do. Yeah. So now it's, and that, yeah, Dave or, you know, the fucker, <laughs> that, that, that's when they started speaking um, the most, kind of being like, yeah, you're not even going to give this thing a try. Like you're, you know, a failure. Wow. That's interesting as well. So, mm. so in some ways though, like the Dave becomes when you kind of harness that voice, it can kind of become a kind of tool for good in a way. I don't know. Like, yeah. I guess in that instance, if you it, didn't have the fucker or yeah. Dave then you wouldn't have kind of... Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Maybe they are of some use. Um, (laughs) Yeah, maybe the aim should not be to silence them, but just quiet them, maybe, Mm. to the times when they can be useful. Yeah. You can't talk right now. Yeah, come back later, maybe, when I need a bit of... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. Do you mind if we touch on the fact that... um, obviously with this podcast being quite mental health orientated a lot of the time yeah so you have adhd you identify as being neurodivergent um yeah how does that help or or hinder your career is it does it do both well i mean for me that that journey has of you know identifying as someone that is neurodivergent and embracing that rather than seeing it as a hindrance is a again is a kind of journey that's that's only really been fully embarked on recently I think when I was younger I wouldn't wouldn't have even really known what ADHD was I mean it certainly I seem to remember it as a kind of as a term kind of slapped on lots of like naughty children at school and even like the even the name is like a bit misleading right attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and even my understanding now of that, like, is is a bit flawed and a bit like weird because, like, well, not flawed, but like the that as a kind of as what you'd call it is wrong, right? Because I don't have not someone who feels like I've got a deficit of attention. Like in some instances, it's like too, I've got too much attention. I'm like focusing too much on the things that I shouldn't be, and, and I'm unable to quiet the kind of the the noise. But that. Jenny only really started about because of my daughter, because my wife suspected that she might be autistic. And again, I didn't really know an awful lot about autism uh, when she started having these kind of thoughts. You know, when I, I wasn't myself necessarily kind of seeing all of these things with Effie and like just missing them actually. And and I, I, I remember when she first broached it, I was very defensive and very much like, no, no, she, she can't. Like, probably in my head thinking that autism was absolutely something that it's not. Do you know what I mean? Like, and and wanting in some way to to protect her. And, you know, I could see that she was struggling a little bit in school and they weren't really meeting her needs. But I kind of was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, she, she's not autistic. She can't be, like... And... You know, thank goodness my wife, Nikki, was just so on on point at sort of reading and researching and, and almost hyper-fixating, we'll talk about that in a moment, like herself over this and wanting to do her best for for Effie. And it just sort of took a while for that to, to sink in and for me to kind of wrap my head around that and just all of the language of it is so complex and complicated mm. being neurodivergent I mean even that as a term feels like it's only really been used in the last couple of couple of years really 
and it's easy to make mistakes as well as kind of language evolves and things change too but yeah frank frankly i didn't think that effie was autistic and and it took a, a long time for me to come around to this idea and and part of that was actually recognizing those traits in myself right, so okay. i was like oh fuck like that also affects me and i also maybe have trouble in these social situations or maybe find it really problematic when plans change at the last minute Mm -hmm. or um, maybe I find it really difficult to express myself in a moment um, even though like you know like I'm intelligent enough to articulate myself but in that moment I can't quite articulate my thoughts I mean there's, there's, there's so many things you know to it so actually like I am I do have ADHD but I'm also also identify as being autistic as well which has been a wild kind of ride really and ADHD as as Nikki kind of focused more and more we kind of realized that actually also Effie you know had lots of lots of traits of ADHD or lots of things that kind of chimes with her experience and again kind of I also felt the same I was like hang on right. oh shit and that and that's quite a kind of an alchemy quite a mix being autistic and having ADHD like they're almost they almost kind of work in opposition to okay. each other at times so it's like uh i i really need there to be like structure and plans like my kind of autistic brain is kind of going i really would be like i want there to be structure and plans to this activity or this thing and my adhd brain is like no fuck it anarchy (laughs) i hate structure it can only be my structure so so at times like and everyone's experience is different as well like even my although i'm saying oh you know i kind of recognize a lot of these traits and things that effie was experiencing myself we experience our experience of being neurodivergent i think is i think it's completely different i think i think is different and other neurodivergent people that I've spoken to, you know, the same, you know, and kind of, yes, like that thing does affect me or, but but actually no, like I'm quite happy with this. So yeah. Yeah. There's always loads of symptoms listed, aren't there? Yeah. It must've been a difficult process kind of labeling yourself with those terms and kind of being like, okay, well, which ones do I fit? Which ones do I not? And if I don't fit all of them, am I still can I still say I have autism if I don't fit every single, you know, yeah. symptom listed? Like, it's a very difficult... And like you said, everybody has such a different experience of... Yeah, so, I mean, like, F- Effie's diagnosis is formal and mine isn't. And mm-hmm. and that's also, uh, maybe for some people, problematic. And, and it's it's quite a kind of... It's a, it's a bit of a contentious thing in the kind of neurodivergent community as well because those who kind of self-diagnose those who have been for a formal diagnosis um is one valid is is one not like it's it's quite a kind of hot topic interesting thing is though like as as an adult like like who have you got kind of there to kind of go hang on a second you might actually be dyspraxic or you you know you might um you might be dyslexic or yeah it's kind of rare that you've you've ever got those kind of those instances where you've as an adult you might have another adult in your life that will recognize that and kind of suggest it to you so more and more adults do have to self-diagnose particularly when our nhs waiting list is like 
nearly two years. So yeah, you know, there's 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 a lot of a lot of problems around that. But because of that, like it was entirely liberating mm. to go. No, actually, I I really do recognise these things, yeah. especially when I kind of look back in hindsight at the early part of my life and in a weird kind of way you you actually you actually actually spend a little bit of time sort of grieving like the kind of the part of your life that you wasn't necessarily as easy but may have been had you had that kind of yeah awareness and knowledge like had that been picked up at school for instance yeah it could be a completely different yeah conversation that we're having now yeah definitely definitely could be and I, and, I th- and I think it's like for me it was a huge weight off my shoulders and I know it was for my daughter as well I, she wouldn't mind me saying but like I remember when we kind of sat down and said look you know kind of because she as I say she kind of was formally diagnosed and just to try and contextualize some of those meetings and stuff that she was having I, like the the weight off her shoulders to kind of oh great so that's maybe why I kind of struggle with that thing and I can see that human doesn't or why people have these expectations of me um which is sort of kind of beautiful in a way like like it's it's so nice now kind of seeing her empower herself and and myself now I kind of do feel like a little bit of responsibility to try and advocate for myself and for other people as well that might be Mm -hmm. having that experience and like I know you know obviously I'm a theatre maker, but also kind of teaching a lot of spaces as well. And I, I can see that that is important for a lot of other people. The the way that certainly in the last couple of years, I've tried to kind of own that. Uh, people are like, what? When I'm like, yeah, I've got ADHD or yes, I'm autistic. You know, and kind of trying to own that as something that's it's not got a fucking stigma about it as well. Because like, it's so, like it's, autistic is, is such a dirty word, I think. You know, like it's, it, oh, right. There's a definite stigma and the, the word is still used as an insult way too often. Yeah. And I guess as well for ADHD to revert back to what you were saying before about it being sort of typically seen as like the naughty child and, yeah. and like there's something wrong if you have it, which not at all. Like I guess in some ways, like you were saying with the being able to hyper-focus on something. Yeah. Might have its perks, you know? Yeah. Been able to like crazy focus on something that you need to. Right. It, it's, it's not necessary. It's not a bad thing at all, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like, I again, like uh, I kind of have said, I, I kind of was that naughty kid in school. Didn't have a great time, and and the experience of being neurodivergent, I think, is often that your like your needs aren't met. Mm. You know that your access to a space, whether that be school or a rehearsal room, or a workplace, or I don't know, a fam, even like a family like social event. There's, there's an assumption, a presumption that everyone should do this a certain way and everyone's experience should be the same. Yeah. Where actually, some of those things might be really jarring for someone. And it's it's difficult for people to kind of own that as well, to kind of go, actually, I'm too hot or like this room feels weird and too light. Mm. But like people have all kinds of sensitivities and yes, like you can't necessarily have all of your needs met but yeah. but if if I could just be asked as well and I don't think just for neurodivergent people I think everyone should be asked that yeah what do you need mm-hmm. to be able to offer your best work your best self yeah why aren't we used to just asking that to people like as a standard and, and like I say not just neurodivergent people everyone yeah it, that's so true actually I guess just 
asking for help in itself is quite a difficult thing. Right. And people um, will avoid asking for help. Yeah. But if but if people ask you at the beginning of something, what do you need to make this experience the best? Or how can you bring your best work to this rehearsal room, to this classroom? I think that a lot of people's lives would be easier. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like the industry is getting better in terms of supporting neurodivergent people and and just people in general in terms of yeah asking how can we adapt a room to make it more accommodating for everybody like is that in your experience is that something that's getting better or is that something that still needs a hell of a lot of work there's still quite a journey to to go on i think but there is some enlivening practice happening there are companies that are realizing more and more that inclusivity needs to go way further mm. on, a, on a whole kind of host of levels to really, really kind of be able to kind of meet what that word maybe means. I think, yeah, I think, like, I think there are some companies that are doing some really good things. For example, there's a really great company called Upstart Theatre who make gamified theatre, uh, which are quite, you know, quite intriguing. Check them out. And they run a festival every year called Darefest. And... One of the things that they, so they, they put this call out and artists applied like, like you would to kind of any commission and people responded. And I also put an application in with, with another collaborator, another kind of friend, and we, we had an idea and it got picked, which was great. And one of the things they asked, you know, asked you, they, they sent everyone through like a Google Doc or, or something like that. And it, it had questions like, you know, is there anything that like might be going on at the minute that might that we might need to kind of know about or mm-hmm. don't this isn't quote unquote but it was just the point is the form was just like what what might you need at this time to have like the best experience is there anything that you want to share how can we meet your access needs and the mm-hmm. whole process felt very supportive and it empowered you to go yeah I might need this or I could I could need this and I, I kind of stole that practice thank you <laughs> up here um, and do it as part of my own company now as well like even just for a workshop like and for everyone not just neurodivergent like like upstart theater did um and that there are more and more companies there's a company called every brain who i was lucky enough to be asked to do a bit of consulting for and they made a guide ali wilson is the name of the person who kind of led that project and they're they're really brilliant creative They, they probably kind of don't know that but they are and um they, they essentially just kind of went about to challenge the status quo and challenge theatres and companies on what they were kind of doing specifically for neurodivergent people. And they made a very accessible visual guide that can be downloaded now, I think, you know, and, and it just offers a little bit of a little bit of direction and support to to companies and organisations as to kind of how you know, how to best support a neurodivergent artist. And it's been made by neurodivergent artists, amazing. you know. So, like, there are good things happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing those things are out there. Yeah. At least, yeah. It, it, it's going to, you know, it might take a while, but at least those things are starting to happen. Yeah. Um, which is amazing because, I mean, I think I'm quite lucky in a way that I only entered this industry in the last couple years uh-huh. when these things do feel quite accessible to me. Like, when... Uh, all in actors was the first acting thing that I'd ever experienced and so in their application process when it said 
yeah is there anything you need to make us aware of Mm. um access needs wise mental health wise initially i was a bit like oh god is this kind of like a test like if i say oh i'm suffering from um severe anxiety and mild depression is what i was diagnosed with um so like if i if i tell them that are they gonna think oh god she's not maybe not emotionally strong enough to hack this course at the minute i was a bit like is this a test should i tell them but then putting it on the application and actually it just meaning that they were aware and they were there if i needed them to help it was purely how can we support you the most and yeah that was amazing to not have it you know question your ability or Mm. your suitability or anything like that for it to just be how can we assist you it's easy to feel like things like that could be could be a, a little trap or a kind of way of flagging things isn't it like it's i can see how it'd be very easy to be that cynical but i'm glad you've mentioned all in because actually as a company they have also been can testify amazing from my perspective as a kind of as a staff member at offering inclusivity and offering a, a safe and kind of brave space to kind of bring my best work and i can see how they as you say kind of offer that to the students that they kind of bring in and like the more and more companies do do recognize that there is a really important role for them to play in in offering access and and offering to meet kind of people's needs i now like have an access rider i know it kind of makes me sound like a bit of a kind of mariah carey diva where i'm like i'll only come to this space if i have blue (laughs) m&ms like all i think everyone should have an access rider i mean and all it is is that in order for me to kind of offer my best work to you i really need to have a system in place of communication that's clear i really Mm -hmm. need to have um the script like in good time like not the night before yeah yeah you know stuff like that so but then you know as I say that out loud I kind of I'm thinking from your perspective like (laughs) how problematic that is like self just thinking of self tapes Mm -hmm. because that's a bit of a shambles isn't it you can get one of them like the night before and have to like (laughs) gosh yeah which is quite common and you know that's a bit shit isn't it it is, it is shit, but then I guess also on the flip side, like, I'm mates with somebody who's just starting out a theatre company, and so, for, you know, from their perspective, shit happens and you can't always give that much notice, but yeah. as the performer, it, yeah, it's so shit, like, being like, oh, cool, there's an audition, yeah, I'm going to apply for this, and then having, like, a few hours to But have you, have you been in that experience where you've been given something the, like, the night, night before? Night before, yeah. And have you, as a result, have you felt you've been able to offer your best work? No. Well, maybe maybe we should fucking challenge that a bit more. You yeah. Know? Like, I don't know. I hear you. Like, so many times, like, I've kind of had to put theatre on in a bit of a punk, a bit of a rogue way. It's like, no, we're just going to put it on, even if there's not really enough money to do it. But I don't know. Maybe, I'm starting to think maybe we should give more space to things mm. and, like, more opportunity for people to genuinely kind of bring their, their best selves to, to stuff yeah that's so true because yeah i felt kind of proud with what i did in the time but yeah, yeah had i have had two nights it 100 would have been better yeah yeah it's those sorts of standards you know that yeah maybe need a bit of bit of a riot a bit yeah of a... yeah let's start one let's <laughs> like... do it let's go <laughs> yeah it's so needed for sure okay i'm gonna ask you what advice would you give to your younger self i think i probably i think i probably want to tell myself to to be more patient you know and 
know it perhaps sounds a bit like a kind of cliche, but like trusting in the process Mm -hmm. and trusting that all of the experiences that you encounter in life, good and bad, even those ones that really floor you are integral and do really kind of count and do have significance and do have, you know, and those things do hold importance to, to you and they instruct and inform where you're going and I think like you know just to touch upon a couple of things that you've already kind of flagged up as well you know sometimes there's that immediacy isn't there that kind of particularly when you think about kind of your career and that doesn't just have to be an arts thing it can be a life thing as well sometimes people are like right I've got a I've got to have a family now I've got to do this now I've got I've got to own a home by the time I'm 26 or I'm a fucking failure and like sometimes sometimes you things might not kind of pan out until you're much older mm-hmm. yeah you know? for sure and yeah that definitely feels like it's been been something that yeah I wish I'd knew very impatient wanted kind of things to happen much more instantly when I was younger whereas now I'm I kind same. of I'm like, <laughs> okay yeah I, I can still be a little bit like that actually mm. but I you know more and more I'm coming to terms with the fact that actually there's just some things that aren't genuinely aren't in your control and you've just got to be patient with exactly yeah actually making this podcast has been a very good lesson in that actually because when I first had this idea it was over a year ago now and I was hoping that we're recording this episode in June it probably won't be out for (laughs) at least six months time because I've got a lot of other projects that are sort of more imminent and need to be you know completed first and for a while I was like oh fuck I failed like I've, I've told way too many people about this now and and it's nice when people check in and ask you know how it's going but it also feels like pressure because it's like oh I know it's not out yet like stop reminding me um yeah totally but actually Odin who has been a guest on this as well um has a very good um like triad of things in terms of like making something yeah um, so he kind of said, you know, when you're making, whether that's theatre, a podcast, whatever, like the sort of the three things are sort of either cheap, fast or good. And you can only have, ever have two out of the three. And, and I thought about it more and was like, OK, OK, so I, I want this to be good, obviously. And, you know, the equipment that I have and stuff, you know, it's it's not cheap. I've put a lot of yeah. stuff into it. And so I was sort of like, OK, so speed is the one that I'm sacrificing then. Yeah. Um, and so that's been a very good lesson, actually, in sort of patience. Cheap, in, fast, good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, sort of patience in, okay, you, you cannot possibly master all three. So pick the most important two for you Yeah. at any given moment. And so, yeah, I've kind of let myself <laughs> sacrifice the fast element for for now. And, and it's helped a lot yeah. to kind of feel like, no, okay, it doesn't matter when it comes out. The important thing is that I persevere and that it does. Yeah. No, that's that's such golden advice that's gonna stick (laughs) I like I had a similar thing recently like where I was lucky enough to get kind of set up on a on a coffee date with and this maybe about four or five years ago with at the time they were the they were the producer of Punch Drunk and I got to go along and have like a sneaky peek of like their kind of um like hangar that had at the time like a whole village in it it was amazing and it, again, it, I mean, about five years ago, it kind of lined up around about the time where I'd, where I'd kind of re-entered the industry, I suppose, where I'd gone, right, I'm going to come back into, you know, working as a freelancer, working 
in in the theatre. And the the advice that they gave to me, which is stuck similar, was always pick the lowest hanging fruit. You know what I mean? So it's okay to kind of germinate all these projects and start this podcast and start this conversation about about this, but it will it will be clear which ones ready to kind of pluck and and to roll with. And I definitely think that that's in, helped instruct the things that I've done. Like even though I might really really want to do this thing and like I've got my heart set on it, it just might not be ripe. Yeah. Just yet. That's great as well. Yeah. That's that's such good advice as well. Yeah. Yeah, sort of the other ones might become available to you at another time, but yeah. for now, this is the one, Let's so go for that. that. Yeah. Let's pick that. Yeah. Oh my God, this has been amazing. Um, yeah. Thank you for your openness and honesty. It's been awesome to chat to you. Likewise. And just yeah. good excuse to catch up as well. <laughs> I know. I mean, this is such a nice space to come and chat to you, and I feel very honoured to be asked. So, no, thank, thank, you. thank you for saying yes. <laughs> Pleasure. It's been awesome. Thank you so, so much, Gav, for being so brave and sharing so much. It is an extremely daunting thing to delve that deep into such personal shit. So thank you. I'd also like to say thank you, as always, to Stephen Sobel and Amy Sayers at All In Actors for your continued support and words of encouragement. To Odin Ornhill Marson for the incredible music and to everyone who has listened and helped me spread the word about this podcast. It really means the world. Have an incredible week and don't let the little fucker win.